Oh, welcome back, everyone, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. <laughs> I I like that we can do we can say that. We said bonsoir, good Abend. <laughs> so, and if it works for you to have your video on, it's nice for me to be able to uh, see people. Again, if, if you're there and can turn your video on. So I last was here three weeks ago. And since that time, I've noticed that both in the people with whom I've been speaking, both friends uh, and family, as well as some of the people with whom I work uh, more in the practice community, that there's been, seems to be a little more intensity of challenges in this last period of time. You know, I can recall just in the last week, some of the people I've spoken with, you know, there are, have been major challenges to uh, long-term marriages, difficulties in relationship, um, difficult diagnoses in families, you know, illnesses, uh, injuries in uh, older people, um, people in my extended, you know, family, several of whom came down with COVID, right, from a uh, unvaccinated, apparently from an unvaccinated co-worker, right? And uh, difficulties in relationships. Uh, yeah, several people I know have had to be evacuated for fires in California. How many people know other people who've been, how many people know people who've been evacuated? So... Uh, the, the nuns at Alo Aloka Vihara uh, near Placerville, not so far from Sacramento, uh, have been evacuated. They took a lot of their images and so forth away. Um, you know, uh, other people I know who are in the midst of going through something like uh, a kind of a, a dark night of the soul a sustained period of uh, things being not quite normal, uh, which uh, I think can often be framed as something in the long run very positive, but in the short run quite difficult. You know, dark night of the soul was a phrase developed by the 16th century um, Spanish mystic uh, Juan de la Cruz or John uh, St. John of the Cross, usually known, wrote a a text called uh, The Dark Night of the Soul. It was actually something in the long run very positive, but in the short run quite difficult. And I, you know, I know people are going through something like that. And interestingly, since I last saw you, I had, um, I had some dental surgery. And so if you notice me not quite being able to smile normally, that's the reason. <laughs> You know, even right now, did, I don't know. Did you notice that it's a little, the smile's a little easier on this side than on this side? You won't be able to tell on the audio, but those looking at the video can 
can tell somewhat. So, and, you know, going through a surgery, it was, I think, relatively a minor surgery, but still a surgery is such that uh, I went under general anesthesia. You know, I go into the surgery just having a little gown, otherwise being, you know, naked to the world, right? You know, it's like meeting mortality in a way. I have to sign a form that says I've acknowledged the hundred completely awful ways everything could go wrong in the surgery, right? You, everyone, people know that, right? You have to sign, and you know. And then I was, I was, I was relaxed a little bit by one of the people asking me that. Said that, of course, the chance of you being really hurt badly in an automobile accident, the fifteen-minute ride to go to the place of surgery is, you know, the chance of that happening is like a thousand or a million times greater than any of these happening. But still, I had to contemplate the uh, horrible things. It was actually uh, quite a beautiful experience in many ways. I had a team of five who were incredibly compassionate, supportive, friendly, quite quite beautiful, quite a quite an inspiring situation. But we have, you know... Many, we've had those kind, many of us have had um, challenging personal experiences and then not to mention uh, the challenges that we know are occurring in different parts of the world. We, we named some of them earlier, again, and we may know or, or read of uh, the levels of uh, difficulty, even fear and terror that I've heard of at times. We heard just now in Afghanistan, uh, the chaos, you know, the, the earthquake in Haiti followed by a, a hurricane, right? And just, I was just hearing on the radio today, large numbers of people without food, you know, and, um, these actually are situations we can actually have some impact on through through um, through donations. I think you know, particularly in Haiti, who are uh, you know the fires that I've mentioned in California, the great rain in uh, in the eastern part of the U.S. It's very um, it's very intense. Not to mention all the uh, systemic issues connected with some of these, you know, the, the, uh, still the need for our political leaders to take emergency measures related to the climate, right? It's not quite happening, right? So all of this happening. And so there's a way that sometimes we can also see ourselves, uh, and also going through what we might call a kind of collective dark night of the soul, right? We might feel like we're entering into that at times, or there's something that's um, very challenging. And, you know, where I'm going to go with the talk is suggesting the incredible importance of our practice and then bringing our practice to bear with the challenges, you know, and that the... You know, I had a, I was talking with a friend a few days ago, and we had kind of had the vision. What would it be like if we had almost? I don't know. We won't, don't want to really call it an army, but uh, you know, we had a you know a million people who were really stable with their equanimity and with their awakening, 
who were able to be addressing both personal issues and more collective issues. Yeah, that's a vision we might have. You know, that uh, there's a story probably some of you know from uh, the great Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, who talked about the boat people who were fleeing Vietnam in the late 70s. Yeah. Some, some parallel situations with, with Afghanistan in some ways. And as they were fleeing, they were in sometimes stormy seas. And Thich Nhat Hanh said that there could be chaos and fear and anxiety. And if, if there was um, one person on the boat who was stable with equanimity and awareness and compassion, then that boat would be okay. It just took one person on that kind of boat to help people not to let their anxiety take them over too much to the sake, to the point of the boat being endangered. So that's, um, that's a possible vision for ourselves individually and, and collectively. And I just wanted to ask, uh, you know, have there been, how many people can relate to some of those challenges I named? You know, that there may be challenges in your extended family or community. Would, um, I want to invite maybe three or four people, just maybe in one sentence, just to name some of what's there in your own circles. You know, uh, Sonia named earlier, knowing uh, Afghan families, but anyone else like to add? It could be something quite personal, just like I mentioned, like a, an illness or an injury or something. Could be just in a personal challenge or could be something at more communal or more collective. And just invite three or four people just to maybe to give a sentence, just naming some of what's there for you. And you can go to uh, the um, raised hand function so I can, I can recognize people. Yeah, uh, Emily, please. So you can unmute, please. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Hi. Um, I am currently separated from my husband, mm. and that has been a challenge that I've been facing, and our marriage has been really uh, damaged, and was, as has our trust. Well. Thank you for naming that, please. Other challenges you'd like to just name? It's partly just to have some reference points. Uh, Andrew, please. Hi. Uh, I'm uh, in the midst of having challenges with my sister. Uh, we're on different pages around uh, vaccines, so I'm just trying to be kind to one another and I'm trying to listen a lot and uh, yeah, it's just an ongoing journey. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. How many others have something like something similar in your own extended families? You know, uh, I, I do. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, Christian, please. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm having uh, some trouble coming to terms with 
my behavior as a younger person uh, and growing into an adult and trying to, I guess, forgive my uh, past behavior. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Christian. Maybe I think we had uh, Elizabeth. Did you still want to speak? Maybe one more, if anyone else would like to speak. Unmute. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I'm dealing with um, the care of my 101-year-old mother-in-law. Oh, wow. And um, she's starting to have some small forms of dementia, and it's very difficult to um, give her what she needs and... Um, you know, just remind myself that she doesn't really mean the things that she says about me. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm giving all, you know, a lot of care and that kind of thing. And then I hear things like, um, Oh, you're a nothing. You, you don't do anything for me. You know, that kind of stuff. So it's, um, it's very challenging. Thank you, Elizabeth. And again, how many can relate to that have something similar or have had it? Yeah. Thank you. Maybe last, uh, Crystal, please. Hi. Um, So yeah, it's been on my mind a lot during the meditation, but today I have a meeting at work because I had harassment allegations saying that I was harassing coworkers. So yeah, that's going to be challenging. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for naming that. So yeah. So, and again, how many, how many can relate to one or more of what was mentioned in uh, either by myself or by others, right? So, so again, it seem you know, there seems it seems to be this uh, quite intense time. Uh, the last time we met, or the last few times we met, we've been looking particularly at the theme of practicing with reactivity as part of a, a larger theme of how do, we, how do we bring alive our daily life practice? How do we have our daily life practice be alive? And the theme we've looked at the last few times has been this really crucial theme of practicing with what I've called reactivity, which as in the guided meditation has to do with when we uh, grasp onto the pleasant in some way or the ones that are more obvious to us are are when we have reactivity towards the unpleasant, towards the difficult, towards the challenging. Those are a little more obvious as problems. Grasping on to that third piece of pie for dessert somehow doesn't seem to be had the same level of of spiritual challenge as some of what we've just mentioned. Maybe I should maybe another time we'll have to just ask, name some of your challenges in terms of what you grasp after. Uh, you know, we were starting, I could go through food or all sorts of things, right? Uh, but, um, but I've mentioned at times that practicing with reactivity and working with uh, the grasping and the pushing away uh, is right at the center, I believe, of the whole 2,600-year-old Buddhist tradition. And I think it's also very related to other spiritual traditions. You know, and, and in the, in the uh, guided meditation and in past times, 
we've looked particularly at this uh, part of the teaching on dependent origination, the teaching that the Buddha came to on the night of his awakening, which gives us this sequence that goes from contact with some sense experience to a sense of pleasance, which if we're not aware can go to wanting and then grasping. And then similarly, uh, an unpleasant experience could go to not wanting and pushing away. And that can happen at the level of the body, thoughts, emotions, all sorts of things. The, the pushing away can be something we say in reaction to another person, can be blaming, judging, can take all sorts of forms. The, the key is that the, these uh, dynamics occur when we're not aware and when we have some underlying conditioning that reactivity is actually a way to solve our problems. Right? And in Buddhist teachings, that would be called a form of ignorance because the deepest happiness and well-being is actually not taken to result from grasping after things and pushing away things. So sometimes we say that the root issues are greed, hatred, and delusion. Or we could say greed or the grasping, aversion, sometimes talked about as hatred, but it's really more the pushing away, the aversion. The grasping, the aversion, and the underlying ignorance, that these are the core problems of human life. And all of the um, collective and institutional forms of problems are institutionalized versions of greed, hatred, and delusion, right? Not so hard to see. I think, you know, at, at times I've sometimes, uh, I think a few times in the last year and a half, I've given talks on how we can understand uh, something like racism in many ways as institutionalized greed, hatred, and delusion. It's not so hard to see that, right? Going back uh, many hundreds of years. And so the interesting thing is that working with this reactivity, practicing with it, is right at the center of transformation. And we can also talk about it more positively because when you look to the traditional texts, the goal of practice is awakening. And in, in the uh, early teachings, awakening is most commonly talked about negatively as the overcoming of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's the, the movement where we transform reactivity, and this opens up the qualities connected with awakening. The teachings some of you know called the factors of awakening. The qualities which help develop that awakening our mindfulness, inquiry into our experience, investigation, uh, joy and rapture, energy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And in our practice, we're developing all of these beautiful positive qualities, and they help us work through reactivity. And this leads to us awakening, to being filled with wisdom and love and being more and more skillful in our action. That's what we're looking for. That's our aim, right? That's the aim of all of this. But practicing with our challenges 
such as we named, is sort of like a quick route to develop. When I first started meditating, I wasn't looking for such a quick route. I looked for a quick route just having bliss and happiness and good feelings in my body and mind. And I thought that when they were talking about difficulties, they were talking about other people. I would just go for bliss. That was my profound misconception when I first started meditating. Anyone had something like that? Where you thought meditation would just lead to happiness, bliss, and everything being good after that. And then pretty soon I got the, uh, the message that I better actually practice with the challenges, with the difficulties. And so I want to talk a little bit more about how to work skillfully with the challenges. We've talked in the last, uh, and explored in the last few sessions, ways of working with um, reactivity. We identified the eight worldly wins uh, the last two times. Remember those? How many of you actually gave some focus to working with the eight worldly wins in the last period of time? That was the invitation. To focus on, remember them? They were, uh, these, these are really situations that when we're not aware will tend to lead to um, reactivity, either the grasping or the pushing away. Let's go with the, let's go with the uh, screen share now, Tolan. That, um, so this is, these are these uh, eight worldly winds or conditions or dhammas that are really good to look out for because when they occur, reactivity may often follow. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, or we might call that having a good reputation or a bad reputation, you know, with this person or that person or in the community, and then praise and blame, you know, so blaming could mean judging. So again, uh, how much do these knock us around, you know, blow us around like the winds? And then this is a one of the old texts from 25, 2600 years ago. These eight worldly conditions keep the world turning round. And the world turns around these eight worldly conditions, which eight? Gain and law, or gain, loss, fame, disrepute, praise, blame, pleasure and pain. A little bit different order. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable things bring no reactivity. So that last statement has to be clarified some and unpacked some, because there are, as I mentioned before, there are a lot of complexities. So let's look at, let's look at this larger theme of working with, uh, of working with challenges. So we can let go of the screen share now. So I've mentioned before that there are some fundamentals or foundations for our practice. And it's always good to mention these, that daily practice, being part of a community can be really, really crucial. You know, that um, especially as we 
work with some of the more challenging personal situations or collective situations, being part of a community, and a community that can mean something like what we're doing now. It can also mean something local, maybe that in the past you may have gone to in person. It can mean having one or two friends that you talk to regularly. I have uh, basically three friends with whom I talk about my practice quite regularly. You know, um, one person nearly every day, and then um, other people every four or five days, another person about every two or three weeks. And this is really crucial. So that level of uh, support community is fundamental for working with challenges. So we can name things, get feedback, bounce things off. Now is remembering uh, something from my teacher, mentor, co-teacher, Joanna Macy, who is one of the great beings of our time. She's 91, still going pretty strong. And she, how many of you know Joanna's work? Some, yeah. And look her up. She has uh, beautiful videos. And she is, has particularly been a teacher of the connection of inner work with responding to the, to the challenges of the world. And she, I remember uh, talking with her. We did a, we did a conversation, which we uh, later published. And she talked about the importance of what she called rough weather networks. When things are challenging, do we have a rough weather network that we can work with, whether they're personal challenges or collective challenges? So, you know, our own personal practice really crucial. Some kind of community network, sense of connection with others who are also practicing, uh, really crucial. Reading, finding ways to have our practice be more there during the day. So this could be, I was talking with someone just yesterday who has a new practice. She is, uh, she does counseling with people. And she said, after each counseling session, I want to take like a few minutes and just come back to really being fully present and have it become something like a routine or a little ritual so that there become several times during the day, in addition to formal practice, where one comes back to being present. See if you can find one or two ways. It could be, you know, some people it's starting a meal with just a little bit of silence, you know, or having a pause or taking a walk after a meal or something like that. It's things we've talked about. These can be uh, really helpful, you know, uh, doing reading, uh, focusing a lot on mindfulness of the body, something we talked about several weeks ago. So, and then, you know, what, what's going to really help us, especially with the, um, with the challenges or the reactivity? So let me name, let me name uh, a few things. But maybe before that, let me, let me mention the, uh, some complexities that I named last time. Because... Um, there are some subtleties and complexities to the, to the guidance on how we work with challenges, how we work with pleasant, unpleasant experiences. And I mentioned that uh, the pleasant or the unpleasant in themselves 
are not the problem. It's the reactivity. I think I mentioned maybe a few times ago how I told this to a group. I said, you know, a pleasant experience isn't the problem. We could just sit here the whole evening eating chocolate, and this would be no issue necessarily. Only if we develop reactivity and grasping after the chocolate, or if you eat too much chocolate, reactivity towards the unpleasant, <laughs> right? And so that's the first really uh, sort of subtlety of these teachings, that it's not the pleasant or the unpleasant in themselves, but it's rather what we do with them, whether we're reactive or whether we have a non-reactive response. And we're, of course, aiming for the non-reactive response. A second uh, complexity is that even though in meditation it can be really helpful just to be present with the pleasant, explore it, be present with the unpleasant, much as we did in our guided meditation, the, uh, the aim is not to be passive with the pleasant or unpleasant. If we have an unpleasant experience, if I'm not feeling well, it's not about being passive, but it's about having a skillful non-reactive response. You know, if I have, uh, you know, if I have an injury, what's a skillful response? If I have, if I'm not feeling well, if I'm noticing, um, you know, a lot of anger or a lot of uh, another uh, emotion that's unpleasant to me, it's not so much get rid of the unpleasant, but what's the skillful response? You know what? That's always what we're looking for. And then the other complexity, which is which is really tricky at times, is that often our reactivity can contain some wisdom. Isn't that a tricky one? So I can be very reactive. You know, very obvious example would be someone. You know, the example I gave a few weeks ago. Someone doesn't keep an agreement with me, and I get really reactive. Well, I want to. Um, it's important for me to notice that person didn't keep the agreement. But what we're looking for is a non-reactive response. And so I can be reactive and still have the insight that wasn't okay, right? And so that's what makes things very, very tricky. I can be really judgmental of myself because I did something that wasn't very smart or very skillful and I might be noticing something important, but that doesn't justify the reactivity. So a significant part of our practice is to preserve what's intelligent or insightful or involves, let's say, a moral insight or an insight even about justice or injustice. How do I preserve that and transform the reactivity and not act out of reactivity? That's not so easy. You know, I, I do a lot of that work when we work, when I teach on transforming the judgmental mind, because that comes up all the time. My judgmental statement may involve an important insight. How do I preserve the insight and transform the reactivity of the judgment? So that's, I wanted to name those, because that's, maybe we can come back to that in discussion. That makes things tricky, right? That makes... Uh, you know, a lot of the times we are, you know, we find like if someone doesn't keep an agreement, it turns into something unpleasant. I get can get really reactive. And there's something that I want to uh, 
keep there. I want to keep the insight, but separate it from the reactivity. So that's that's a real subtlety or a complexity that's important to notice. Okay, so what's what's helpful? Let me give uh, a few guidelines, and we can then we can talk together. Um, what are what are ways of working with some of the challenges that we've named, whether they're individual ones or relational ones or more ones related to our collective world? Um, let's see. Um, first would be uh, set one's intention. Coming back to intention is really really crucial. Um, can I set the intention to try to bring my practice and my teachings to this challenge? So working with intentions is really fundamental. We can do this in our uh, meditations at the beginning, maybe at the end of the meditation. We know we have to deal with a certain challenge. Set an intention. You know, the intention doesn't guarantee that uh, everything will go well. It doesn't even guarantee that we'll remember the intention in five minutes. Sorry to tell you that. But, uh, uh, but it helps, right? The intention helps. And so working with intention could be number one. Maybe number two would be uh, to come back to that theme of community and connection. You know, maybe have friends that you uh, have a f one friend you can talk to. You know, to have that sense of community in navigating a challenge, either personal or collective. That, that can be uh, really crucial. Um, you know, I, I saw that uh, Sylvia, uh, two weeks ago, gave a talk called uh, Transforming the I to We Through Wisdom and Kindness. And I think there are ways, as we deepen in practice, that we have more of a sense of that connection and community. And so that's, that's the second, really, support, we might say, for working with challenges. First, set intentions. Second, uh, ground in community. Uh, number three, one I mentioned last time, I think, that I was here, is to assess the level of reactivity. Assess the level of the challenge. Sometimes the challenge is in the workable range. We can be mindful. We can explore it. And sometimes the level of intensity is so high that we need to have another strategy. That being mindful may not work so well. Sometimes it may be intense enough. So we just need to kind of just have some uh, settling of our nervous system. Some way to regulate our nervous system. So often do something physical you know, dance or take a walk or be with beauty, listen to art. And so we, we all want to have a, uh, a set of things we do when it, things are just too much. And it's really good to know that, you know, almost like have, uh, have just, uh, I don't know, written down somewhere, here's what I do when things are too much. Right? And, and know what they are, you know. So the fourth would be to work with mindfulness and really to explore um, the challenges, explore our reactivity, um, bring mindfulness, explore the emotions, 
What's it like in the body when I have this particular difficulty or challenge? Let me explore it because a lot of the transformation is going to occur by really knowing really, really closely our own forms of reactivity. And I, I, I often joke, as, as many of you have probably heard, that if we were being more accurate in our advertising for Spirit Rock, we would say, come, learn about your 10 main forms of reactivity. Study them closely. Hang out with unpleasant experiences. But if you look at the webpage for Spirit Rock, I doubt if you'll see that, <laughs> right? But this is actually, and, and maybe it's because this is maybe more of an intermediate level of practice. Maybe a beginning level of practice, we just need to have some settledness and some, uh, some confidence. But when we have a certain level of confidence, we have confidence to go into the difficult, right? It's a huge part of practice, right? We have confidence to go into and to transform the reactivity. And, and we can do that in part by mindfulness. We can be with anger, notice the reactivity. You know, and a lot of the emotions, it's important to say, um, really can be seen just as energy. Anger is really just energy. It's not necessarily reactive. We can have anger that comes through as kind of a pure energy Often, if it gets connected with blaming and judging, it becomes reactive, right? But there also can be a kind of pure energy of anger, which is just saying, without reactivity, this is not okay. How many of you know that aspect of anger in yourself, where you've sometimes had a sense of anger coming through without really reactivity or blaming? It's interesting, isn't it? Right? When you study anger closely, sometimes you'll find that energy. I think that's also parallel with other emotions, like sadness. Sadness in itself is just a, a response to reality, often to loss or something difficult. It can very easily trigger reactivity. Right? But sadness in itself and grief can just be energies that are there. And a lot of the ways that we work most skillfully is just to be with the energy of the emotions and notice and even look out for where there's reactivity. Yeah. I've mentioned sometimes how my, my mom died unexpectedly um, over five years ago. And I was, had planned to be on retreat and it turned out that I was on retreat six days after she died. And there was a lot of grief, a lot of shock. And my basic um, instructions to myself and from some of the teachers I worked with was just let the grief come through and watch what gets in the way or gets it stuck, right? Which would typically be a narrative, oh, I should have done this or I should have known this or, you know, that, those were the kind of things that were coming through. So we, we can be with strong emotions, and if we have a level of mindfulness, we can let them come through and then look for what gets us stuck. Look for the reactivity. The strong emotions typically at times will be a little bit caught up with reactivity, maybe a lot, right? So that's, that's, uh, that's our, our work that we can do. We can really study 
uh, we can study the um, study the emotions again. A big thing to look for with these emotions or with any of the challenges is to look for negative narratives. That's so huge, right? How many of you notice sometimes when you get stuck, there's a negative narrative? Or could be what? A, um, a negative scenario about the future, right? Things will just happen in this way. We want to really look out for that. So with challenges, really look out for negative narratives. And again, they may have some truth, so it gets tricky, right? But we want to look out for them, look for where we look for where we get stuck. You know, it can be really helpful to, to ground in the body when we're, when we're trying to work with these challenges. We can bring in the wisdom teachings. Remember the teachings about the eight worldly winds or the teachings about reactivity or the teachings about awakening and how transformation occurs. Uh, the teachings about impermanence, right? Or the teaching of how things change, you know? We can remember, I think, I think I've told this uh, recently, but, um, you know, that, that story about the, uh, remember about the Chinese farmer who uh, there's a wild horse comes in and his neighbor says, oh, how fortunate, you have a new horse. And he says, don't know. Might be fortunate, might not be. And then uh, the next day, his son is trying to tame the horse and falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And the neighbor says, oh, such bad luck. And he says, don't know. <laughs> and then the next day, the army comes through and wants to enlist the son, but he has a broken leg so he can't go. Right. And the neighbor says, oh, so fortunate. And the, the farmer says, don't know. <laughs> and, you know, you can make this up so it goes on for another 10 rounds, right? That's interesting, isn't it? Right? And so just to bring in those teachings uh, of not really knowing, being careful of when we think we know more than we really know. That's a good one, isn't it? Watch out for when you think you know more than you really know. Okay. So... Um, so bring in the teachings. I think very crucial is to hold all of this with, um, with compassion. Really bring in the heart practices, because when we're going through a challenge, we want to really uh, increase the dimension of compassion. It can, be a, you know, it can be a practice that we do, actually, to bring to mind one's own difficulties, and go right into compassion. You know, there's that three-step compassion practice from Kristen Neff that I sometimes mention. You bring to mind something difficult, step one, very, very quick practice. Step two, you acknowledge that this is difficult. Acknowledge that it's um, common to all humans. We talk about sort of collective humanity or common humanity. That's step two. First step, acknowledge it's hard. Step two, Acknowledge that others experience this as well. Very crucial. Step three, give yourself a kind uh, encouragement of some kind. You know, you know, I hope I can be with this challenge skillfully. It's a kind of compassion practice. So 
bringing in loving kindness or compassion, holding it, holding everything with, with, the, with the kind heart, uh, really, really crucial. And so, and then the last is something that, you know, we can go into more detail on maybe other times, but bring this all together to respond skillfully. How do I respond skillfully to the challenge? How do I respond non-reactively to the challenge? So these are, these are a number of different ways that we can work with challenges. Just naming some of these, you know, naming the, uh, you know, naming the intention to work with it skillfully, working with intention, working with uh, mindfulness, investigation, uh, bringing, uh, identifying the level of intensity, bringing in the kind heart, finding ways to respond uh, non-reactively. This is the formula. And, and through this, this is the formula also for awakening. You know, we awaken, I think my experience has been, we, we awaken in two ways, two main ways. One of them is we hang out and touch beautiful qualities and spend a lot of time with them. Maybe mindfulness, kindness, loving kindness, like we do at maybe at loving kindness retreats. Beautiful to be around people there. So we 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 find uh, peace in the mind, and we we develop these beautiful qualities, and we often hang out with them more and more. When I first was practicing, I thought that was all there was, right? But it is, it is really crucial, very important. So we hang out with beautiful qualities and develop them. The second is we work with challenges. And these are the two ways we awaken. They have to go together. You know, so if I have a lot of challenges, it's often more skillful. Let me hang out with the beautiful qualities more. I need more beautiful qualities. I remember, again, working with one person. She said, I've been doing a lot of inquiry at family gatherings, and it's, it's hard, right? I've been doing that a lot. I've been doing mindfulness of reactivity at family gatherings, ah. <laughs> right? And she said, and I, so I said, how about hanging out with joy for the next month? And she said, that sounds good. No family gatherings, just joy. Okay, so, so we, want to, we want to find that balance, right? So... That's a way of holding it, but that remembering our really our intention is to awaken and to be of be of benefit to others. It's really helpful to hold that. And as we're doing this practice, we are awakening. That's happening. It's good to know that. So let me finish with uh, really with two things. One is just a, sort of an expression of the awakened mind and heart. This is from the Tibetan tradition. One of my favorite passages talking about the quality of the awakened mind and heart. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. It's from the 16th century, Dagpo uh, Tashinamgyal open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. That's our awakened being. 
And then I'll close just repeating that passage uh, from the Buddha. These eight worldly conditions keep the world turning round. Which eight? Gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. These conditions among human beings are inconstant, impermanent, subject to change. Knowing this, the wise person, mindful, ponders these changing conditions. Desirable things don't charm the mind. Undesirable ones bring no reactivity. That's the direction. So let's sit for a moment quietly and just see what comes to you, maybe what's helpful from our exploration. Maybe a question that's there. See if there is any any question that you might have or maybe something you'd want to share about what was helpful for you in a challenge. Or maybe bringing up a challenge where you're a little bit stuck. That's, that's fine too. Um, great. So Kathleen, please. Thank you. So um, I wonder if you could reflect on fear. Yeah. So you had mentioned anger and sadness as being possible insights. And I found when I was looking at the, you know, kind of reflecting that what kept coming up for me was, was a fear, you know, a real, um, you know, putting my hands up and, and, and feeling a fear. You know, I have a situation in, that I'm thinking of in particular where I have a sister who's very, very difficult right now and is constantly, or frequently, I should say, kind of whacking difficult situations into the family that we then have to deal with. Yeah. And every time I hear from her, I'm kind of like, you know, putting up these things. And I was wondering if you could reflect on ways to deal with fear right yeah thank you um thank you for naming fear um or we could also connect it with related emotions um anxiety or concern and of course most of what i named uh, is going to be helpful right you know working with all, all the different ways of working with challenges is going to be helpful with fear it is actually really helpful to uh, when it's there investigate it to you know if it's in the workable range bring mindfulness to it it's really really interesting I I have had the good fortune we might say or bad fortune early on in my meditation I would do retreats and a number of times I had uh, difficult emotions 
were there for a large part of the retreat. And I had one retreat where it was fear, where I actually was with fear like eight or 10 or 12 hours a day for a week. And it luckily was mostly in the workable range. So I was able to be mindful and look into it. And it was really illuminating. So, uh, you know, part of what you can do when it's in the workable range, and you could even sometimes deliberately, maybe in a meditation when it's not there, bring it up and then be mindful of it and look at it. What I found when I did my own inquiries was that um, something which, when you think about it, is kind of obvious. Fear is always about the future. That's interesting, isn't it? It's never about the present moment, right? It's about something which will either get worse or happen in the future. And, you know, that's not to say it doesn't have any validity, but it's helpful to know it's about the future. It's not about something happening in the present moment. And again, often uh, fear can have some intelligence to it. How do we separate out that intelligence from the reactivity? A lot of uh, what you also can find with fear is repetition of narratives, right? That's going to be really crucial to notice. Uh, look for the repetition, right? Because that's basically you're scaring yourself over and over again, or I'm scaring myself, right? By repeating the narratives, you know, you know, uh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen over and over again. So you can see that by actually studying the fear with mindfulness, get to know that it's not in the present moment, that it involves repetition, that it's a lot about narratives. And again, it's fear uh, can often have some intelligence, right? Um, you know, if I'm, you know, uh, hiking and I'm next to a cliff and I feel some fear, that's not, that's not like total ignorance, right? There's something smart there, something intelligent. So we can recognize that there can be some intelligence to the fear. But a lot of what makes it dysfunctional is the repetition. And again, so you can think of the example of like a, a uh, you know, in a lot of types of work, maybe mountain climbing or work or practice, people um, face a certain level of fear and they get familiar with it. And so they can be with it without it proliferating or, or expanding. That's what we're looking for. Right. I took some martial arts at one point. And I think the practice of the martial arts was, you know, like, come, you know, somebody coming at you with it and, and learning yeah. to not feel uh, scared there and kind of using that to, uh, to learn the new technique or whatever. So maybe that would be helpful for me. Something like that. Or we could, um, you know, we could uh, transfer your story to interpersonal relationships. And uh, you could do something, you know, I'm thinking of uh, uh, role plays, right? Or like when I have some time, when I've taught uh, mindful communication or wise speech retreats with my colleague uh, Orange A. Sofer, uh, we typically do the foundations for the first four days of the retreat. And then the last two or three days, we do a lot of role-playing with difficult situations. 
So this would be the equivalent of martial arts, like do a role play where you instruct a friend or someone else to uh, play your sister and see what a skillful response would be. You notice what your reactions were. This is what we would do in the retreat, right? We'd train people. And, and so, so I think what you're pointing to is that kind of confidence I can be with the situation will um, lead there to be way lower levels of fear and anxiety. So that, that's an element too, right? To, uh, uh, you know, and this is going to depend on the situation, but if you, you know, uh, develop, you know, the equivalent of the martial art would be developing the uh, sense, I think, you know, here's, um, and here's what I might do if this happens, right? And train for that, just like, you know, in the civil rights movement, uh, a lot of the uh, people in marches and so forth would do role-playing or, you know, when, you know, when they were doing uh, boycotts and so forth and doing sit-ins, they would do uh, role-playing. What happens when someone yells the N-word to you, right? And they would, they would do all sorts of training so that they wouldn't get freaked out when something happened. So we could say more. Maybe, maybe that's a good topic for another time because fear is a big one. And I think I do, I did, I did give a series of talks, I think several years ago on fear. So it's on Dharma Seed. If you uh, go under on Dharma Seed under my name and search for fear, (laughs) so to speak, you will, you will find some, some longer talks. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. How many can relate to that, that theme of, of fear? Yes. Thank you, Kathleen, so much for asking that. I have a question in the chat, if you'd like. Great, uh, thanks, Owen. Great. Um, so I think with regards to, I think this is something you said, don't let pleasant experiences charm you. They they kind of had a, they wanted to, an inquiry about that. They said, they listened to Rick, uh, Rick Hansen teaching yesterday, saying that it's easier for negative to stick with us than positive. Yeah. He suggested stretching out the positive, increasing it in some way, so that the positive will take root more. Um, and also a joyful and pleasant experience, like, they want to enter into it, isn't it proper to do so rather than um, holding back? It's just the over-expecting it or the illusion about it being forever that's grasping, it seems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of subtleties here. Thank you for the question. It's really uh, pointing to the challenge. And I I was just reading someone's translation. I don't, for that word, I don't know what the, uh, the word charm, I don't know what the literal one was. Yeah. Um, Um... yeah, Rick Hansen, who who is a what a neuroscientist and has made a lot of connections with our practice and teaching, he says something like, "We are um, what uh, Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive, <laughs> right?" And uh, so I think it's it's tricky because we want to look out when is there grasping and reactivity. And I think it's very valuable just to experience the pleasant or experience when good things are happening. The, the key is always going to be when is there grasping or reactivity? Because I think, I think I might challenge uh, Rick a little bit that I think uh, addictive tendencies are also very, very strong, right? And that's typically about the, the positive or about the pleasant experiences. I think those are, those can be very, very strong, but I think it's, it's actually um, 
you know, if I think of something like uh, good food, and I, I think I experienced this especially doing retreats where we ate really, really slowly and were really mindful of the food. What I noticed is that a lot of the grasping for food actually doesn't come out of being really present to the food. It comes out of an idea or some habit, right? And so it can actually be a beautiful experience with food or something else that's pleasant just to say, what does the pleasant feel like? And really tune into it. And that's not about grasping. That's just really experiencing the pleasant or experiencing uh, what it feels like to have... uh, done a good job on something, you know? So I think there's something in what Rick is saying. And so the the key is like, what are my forms of reactivity in relationship to the pleasant? And again, it was really interesting with food, at least when I did my inquiries, it tended to be the grasping maybe for a second piece, a second piece of dessert often came when I wasn't really tasting the food, right? And then when I really taste the food, my experience is a little bit different. Right? I eat more slowly. I really taste it. So, so that's, that's very interesting. So I think I would encourage really explore pleasant experiences with uh, taste, smell, the body, you know, uh, you know, be with, uh, you know, I know sometimes uh, when I get in my, my car, on a sunny day, it feels really, really good to be in a warm car. Anyone have that experience? And I, next time I should do it, I should just slow down and say, okay, let me feel this. Not in a hurry. Let me just feel the warmth, you know, the warmth and how good it feels. And then I can also notice if I stay long enough there, it starts getting hot. It doesn't feel pleasant. So that's interesting too, right? So... Um, so I think that's, maybe that's a beginning response to that question. Okay, uh, Maureen, please, maybe one more, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I'm sure this is a little uh, simplistic, but it just made me think, I'm going for acupuncture this afternoon. Yeah. And for me, um, you know, while I'm waiting, I have uh, intense fear but I also have during the procedure or during the acupuncture, I have both pleasure and pain. Yeah. And I don't know if that can, if I can really say that that is the eight wins or, you know, am I, am I making something that's very simple or complex? Yeah. Is it in, in going to acupuncture, is it uh, sort of uh, fear of the sensation with the needles? Um, well, sometimes it's fear when it hits a nerve in a certain way and you get that jolt. Oh, okay. And does um, that happen sometimes for you? Uh-huh, yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I'm someone who's done acupuncture for 15 years. Yeah. And that that doesn't really happen hardly at all for me, but yeah. maybe I'm lucky. Um yeah, but I, I think many of us can have parallels, you know, like with, you know, with uh, with my dental surgery, <laughs> you know, and having having uh, needles and all sorts of things, mm-hmm. and being at the dentist and having a six-inch needle come towards me, 
Right? Towards your mouth, yeah. yeah. Towards my mouth. So I think it's something to explore. See if it's possible for you. Again, and maybe it's related to what we looked at with uh, Kathleen, that can you can you be confident that if you get the jolt that you'll be okay? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Can you have some confidence there so you don't have to brace yourself quite so much? Yeah. Is that is that possible? Yeah, um, that's that's really um, something I should look at. Usually I try and meditate before, Yeah. but I still have that inkling. Um, but, uh, but I think that's... Uh, great idea that I can look at the confidence that that it's it's temporary it's quick it's it's not it's not something that continues it's temporary and is it doesn't cause damage right right mm -hmm. it's, it's just a temporary quite uncomfortable moment but but or, or you know it's it's um the lack of control I guess the fear of yeah that I can't control that sensation yeah and and so maybe maybe just reflecting on that some of what we've just mentioned that uh, you know I can have confidence that if this occurs, I will yeah. be as skillful as possible. It's not going to damage me, and mm -hmm. um, you know I have confidence, and I you know, see if this comes to you that I don't need to uh, cause worry for myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. You'd love to hear a report back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much, Maureen. Great. So thanks everyone. So let's uh let's finish in with two two um two processes. One is I'm gonna teach next week. The invitation would be to explore the territory that we've gone into, which is really ways of being skillful with challenges that occur, whether personal or relational or related to the larger world. And how to be skillful with those, maybe using some of the uh, suggestions made in, that I gave and that came out of the discussion. And just take a moment to Set your own intention. How do, how do I want to explore this? What will help me to remember to explore it? Maybe set an intention every morning, something like that. And then we close with our uh, traditional practice called the Dedication of Merit. Knowing that we practice very much for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of others. And part of the practice is understanding the sense of interdependence more and more deeply. So may, our, may the benefits of our mourning be there for us 
be there for people in our own lives and circles. And may those benefits then be there beyond our own circles, out into the larger world, where we invite the benefits of our morning to be there with all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thanks everyone, uh, a pleasure, pleasure to share and uh, till next time, may the next week be good, hope to see you in one week and if you want to uh, unmute and say uh, goodbye, I'll say goodbye in this way to everyone <laughs> and uh, if you want to unmute and say goodbye, feel free to do that now. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Good to see everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Donald. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tolan. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Tolan. Yay, Tolan. Yay, Tolan. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.